Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, what caused the earthquake in Papua New Guinea, Hela Province? and what is being done to assist the affected people. I'll be speaking to Dr Luke Fletcher from Jubilee, Australia. Why are Muslims being targeted in Sri Lanka? Dr Brian Sinuaratna. Activist and broadcaster Chris Gaffney, who just introduced himself then, will be having the first of his lectures on the beginnings of the ALP. And Australian permaculture trainer and devotee Rosemary Morrow talking about 40 years of her work with permaculture. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when as the so-called gig economy companies make submissions to a Senate inquiry into the future of work, that the law be tightened to ensure they can continue to exploit workers or, sorry, reach fair-to-all contracts with their, their contractors, one of them, Foodora, Foodadora Profit, is suing an ex-contractor after an encrypted messaging service he to chat with co-workers became a venue for workers, oh, sorry again, contractors to vent their spleen after the company splashed, slashed their wages and conditions. So, sorry, the terms of their contracts. Foodadora Profit claims this bloke's private service is their property under the terms of the contract and are seeking an order that he handed over to them after firing him for refusing to hand it over. Well, the report I read said fired, but seeing he's not an employee, we can assume they cancelled the contract. Bit of danger for Foodadora Profit, though, because the case will consider whether the contractors, mostly young people, are in fact, wait for it, surely not, workers, employees. Or the young worker contractor could turn their argument on them and argue the messaging service is the property of his contracting non-company. Hopefully, the court will make a sensible decision that his property is Foodadora Profits property and all those young people complaining are contractors. Like that sensible decision by a commissioner this week that grains giant by terror to workers can terminate its EBA and reduce workers' pay by 24% and slash redundancy entitlements while increasing work hours at Port Lincoln. The EBA, Commissioner Peter Hampton ruled, is impacting the company's productivity and competitive position and these changes are important given the trading environment. He did say the new conditions were not ideal for the workers, which is, which is putting it mildly, but productivity and competitiveness must come first, he said. Bet the workers putting in longer hours for 24% less pay will feel like working their guts out to improve productivity. The filthy rich shareholders who pay no tax but deserve thousands in handouts from our taxes will appreciate what we're doing. We're doing it for them. They will chat happily as they work their guts out. 
the opening of the next item is just that we can mention our favourite staple, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, who would be dead to the crazy left reporting by the ABC that the family of the... Uh, sorry, a copper charged in the US of the US, the UN of the US of the world with the murder of a true Blue expatriate claim the charges are racist. Oh, how Constable Duffer must ponder how anyone could be racist, but without wanting to make him dead to the crazy left rantings of this station, we must agree with that bit of the family's argument. He wouldn't have been charged if the victim was not white. And though they didn't say it, if the killer copper had been white, not that he shouldn't be charged, but as the US of forces of law and order repeat, black lives don't matter. The family says the killer was only doing his job, so the lesson is, if we happen to be in the US of and hear an assault or a crime taking place, for goodness sake, don't report it. I was going to say, if it's the last thing we do, don't report it, but if we do report it, it could be the last thing we do. On the last thing we do, here, a number of health agencies combined to undertake a study which, after much research, concluded that sausages are loaded with salt. <laughs> Wonder what the research cost, because all they had to do was take a bite and not swallow. And they didn't even mention the fat. But on such matters, we all know the private sector is so much more efficient than the public sector, and we do have to admire that efficiency. Those who listen to City Limits Wednesdays will know we have been covering the Tullamarine toxic waste dump issue for years, the company dragging out discussions for eons to avoid wasting money cleaning up its mess to prevent the dump leaching into waterways and ultimately the bay, gases creating an elevated incidence of cancers in the surrounds. Well, talk about the efficiency we must admire. The privatised airport corporation has plans for expanding commercial activities and isn't this brilliant? Wants to establish a medical research institute including researching cancer. How efficient! One lot creates the subjects and the other takes advantage, having the subject matter right on its doorstep. Brilliantly efficient and showing how the great corporates can work together to make the world a better place. Uh, well, apart from the immediate neighbours and the waterways and the life or what may be left of it in the waterways. In fairness, the great toxic waste corporate did praise the efficiency of the public sector. We must congratulate the EPA for its efficiency in ensuring we don't have to waste money cleaning up the mess. After all, these people don't have to live there. And great transnational corporate Newcrest Mining has decided not to build a tailings dam on land at its new Wafi Golpu copper and gold mine in Papua New Guinea. It will be a cheaper option over the life of the mine, its supremo Sandeep Biswa's real name, said to pipe the wastes into the ocean, as it already does as its, as its uh, Lahir mine in PNG. Perhaps we should give him a week that was name. Perhaps we should. Insane deep. No, no, he assured us. The dumping would be a whole kilometre offshore and in a very deep oceanic basin. Well, they wouldn't dream of dumping their wastes in the ocean if they thought for one second it might cause the odd problem. And it is quite safe. 
unless you happen to be a fish, a shark, a whale, a dolphin, a mollusk, a turtle, a cephalopod, that sort of thing. Well, that sort of life form, quite possibly temporary life form. And freaking his environmental credentials, insane deep explained, an on-land tailings dam would disturb land valuable for biodiversity, heritage and economic reasons. Oh, concern for biodiversity and heritage is something for which we've long admired the great mining resource corporates, although economic reasons rarely enter their mind. At a conference last week of that epitome of all that is good in a capitalist world, the real estate industry, a panel including Lend Losers and Multiplux Our Money predicted automation and robots would have a major impact on jobs, but... Robots in the real estate industry? How would we tell the difference? In the week that was sport, the wonderful young men who comprised the True Blue Aussie cricket team have given a whole new meaning to the term sticky wicket, or rubbing people up the wrong way, but retain the whole old meaning of dumb or puerile or brainless or moronic. We could go on, with commentators including many in the 11 pages devoted to dumb, puerile, brainless and moronic in yesterday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, agreeing with each other, so much so it, combined with the Grand Prix and page after page of football, crowded out a March Sunday to protest Troubadouazi's treatment of those seeking refuge, many from our invasions of their countries, while recognising our obligations to South Apartheid's white farmers. Commentators concurring that the sticky wicket was contrary to all that Troubadouazi stands for. Fairness, sportspersonship, acceptance, compassion, multiculturalism. All the more reason to ignore the thousands marching who preached non-Troubadouazi values like cruelty, inhumanity, racism, militarism, views demanding to be denied oxygen. The True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, which normally runs the sport of ripping off on its front page, told us how the sensitivities of the generous sponsors who provide their sponsorship for no other reason than a love of sport and True Blue Aussie values, a financial services company, the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, and the Flying Kangaroo, which used to be our airline, and we can but imagine the disbelief at the financier and big bank and airline that someone would cheat and practice deceit. Indeed, they sounded very righteous. In the week that was Vroom Vroom Department, and as Bernie Vroom Vroom must giggle uncontrollably at how, like putty in, governments can be, this true he bloke who becomes a local hero for one week a year gave us his considered opinion that the footy grand final should be held at night under lights obviously visiting Melbourne once a year to tear up a public park in return for an obscene income, qualifies Daniel, that's his name, as an expert commentator on the footy, because that earned a whole page in the Whopping Sin, the major propaganda vehicle for the weekly bread and circuses, but a positive, a positive. It's not all bad. I had this really, really good thought. Let's recommend they hold the Grand Prix at night, but without the lights. That should reduce the non-spectacle to somewhere between 3 and 10 seconds and provide employment for those who have to clean up the mess. 
And as the whopping sin pointed out, as if we needed it pointed out, Dan the driver is a good Dan, as opposed to the pejorative Dan, who is an evil Dan, and whose evil will be spaced sensationally across the Lord Rupert network right up to election day in November. Lord Rupert and his editorial lackeys doing their best to ensure we get the election right this time. Finally, Facebook trillionaire Mark U. Zuckerberg says he's really and truly, truly sorry they got sprung rigging elections around the world. I bet he is. Good afternoon. And it's good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And it's um, about coming up to 12 minutes past four o'clock. First in a series of lectures by a good friend and broadcaster, Chris Gaffney. And I'll give you some background to these lectures. Chris was the Secretary of the Labor College for 27 years. He lectured on politics of the day and recorded them. He gives us history and political insight from a Marxist viewpoint, which is essential for a working class understanding of political and social reality. And of course, Chris is still a programmer here at 3CR and you heard him in the last couple of hours with Great Voices. So this is number one and it's about the pre-sense of, well, the beginnings of the ALP back in the 19th century. A modern labour movement is the product of the development of capitalism, a consequence of the appearance of the modern working class and the separation of the masses of the people from ownership of the means of production. Australia was established in the capitalist era and has developed within the capitalist system. The immediate reason for the establishment of Australia was the overcrowding of British jails, but from the 1820s on, the demands of British textile manufacturers for Australian wool gave the impetus for capitalist development within Australia. The discovery of gold in 1851 had a profound effect on Australian development. Firstly, it provided a market for British capital. Secondly, its initial effect was to make wage labour scarce as thousands flocked to the goldfields. Wages increased in real terms, and although they declined when the number of strikes declined, they remained higher than they had been in the 1840s. High wages for labourers, plus the fact that the goldfields contained all social classes where rank made little or no difference, and a man could rise from rags to riches overnight, this put an end to the aristocratic pretensions of the squatters, who had seized prominence in the 1840s. The Eureka Stockade was not, as some romantics would have it, a proletarian or workers' revolt, but men who sought gold as their way out of wage slavery. Some did acquire enough capital to become small capitalists. The majority, of course, did not and by the 1860s, these provided a ready-made supply of wage labourers. Yet the promise of easy capital lingered in one part of Australia or another well up into the 1890s. This had an important effect on the outlook of the labourer, who developed an outlook more akin to the petty bourgeois than to working-class consciousness. The 1860s was a period of relative stagnation, with struggles between the city merchants immeasurably strengthened by the gold boom, and the squatters over the latter's land and political monopoly. The urban poor, greedy for land, supported their city masters in their attack on the squatters. 
The Selection Acts of the 1860s was the direct outcome of this support, which aimed at the squatter's monopoly of the land, and promised the urban workers a self-sufficient farm of their own, a promise which in the main was not realised. During the period 1860 to 1890, often called the Long Boom, this saw a great influx of British capital into Australia in the pastoral and agricultural industry. Of much less importance were the investments in manufacturing, shops, mines, shippings and churches. The absence of large-scale manufacturing industry until a decade into the 20th century also kept the growing working class trapped within the mentality of the small proprietor. Added to this was the early growth of political democracy. By 1860, the Australian colonies enjoyed the secret ballot, manhood suffrage, though not women, and short regular parliaments, things which had to wait many years to arrive in the United Kingdom. This was won by the urban middle classes in their fight against the squatter-dominated parliaments and required no development of class consciousness by the urban working class. The gold rushes had produced an egalitarian outlook and a degree of social mobility not found anywhere else in the empire. But it was not a socialist consciousness, but one which was accepted by the liberal middle class well into the 20th century. Indeed, the first Labour government of 1904 had a non-Labour Attorney-General, despite the fact that Billy Hughes is qualified as a barrister. The Labour Party didn't consider it proper that anybody so inexperienced should hold such an august position. Such socialist ideas as existed were utopian, and popular books of the time were Edward Bellamy's book Looking Backwards in which the hero wakes after a hundred years' sleep to find himself in a perfect society. This, of course, avoided all the transitional problems. David Simon of the Age described himself as a socialist, while William Lane defined socialism as, quote, being mates. These socialist ideas were part of the largely pre-industrial environment in which they flourished. The enemy was not capitalism, but bankers and land monopolists the traditional enemy of the petty bourgeois, the small farmer and the small businessman. And for wage labourers seeing the possibility of becoming a small proprietor, they became the enemy for him as well. It's very revealing to look at the 1894 platform of the Labour Party, which shows clearly that although labouring men from 1840 to 90 were often working class, their consciousness was petty bourgeois. The rank-and-file opinion had been consulted on the policy to be adopted by the party. The order of priority was determined by exhaustive ballot and the top of the list came land value tax. Second was mining on private property to ensure that the the gold rush would never end. And third and fourth were abolition of the upper house and local government, both dominated by the landed interests. Sixth came call for a state bank to beat the moneylenders And second last came the eight-hour day, the only working-class reform which was amended two years later to, quote, where practicable in order to secure the farmer's vote, end of quote. An artisan opponent of the eight-hour day at a meeting asked this, quote, would any man in this room who ever expects to be a master for himself consent to work for eight hours for 16 shillings if he might obtain 20 shillings for 10 hours? The last point shows both the relatively high wages of the labourer 
and the expectation of most of the labourers. This petty bourgeois level of thinking dominated working class organisations, the earliest of which was formed during the late 1850s. Because of the relatively high wages, the earliest struggles were for the eight-hour day, and it was in the building industry that success first came. This led to the state, trades and labour councils in the 1850s, leading to the first intercolonial conference in 1879. But these early unions were essentially craft unions. The 1870s saw the rise of new unionism. These were mass national unions comprising unskilled and semi-skilled workers, the miners, the shearers, and the general rural worker, and of course the seamen. These were outside the ambit of the trades council centred in the city. These were the most proletarian elements in industries where capitalist ownership was far more concentrated and capitalist exploitation was clearer than in the secondary industries where class distinctions were somewhat blurred. Even by 1891, only 25% of occupied workers in New South Wales and Victoria were engaged in small-scale manufacturing. It was these new unions that supplied the great fighting force for the strikes of the 1890s. The city unions were craft unions, little more than benefit societies aimed at providing sustenance to ill or unemployed members. The typical unionist was a pillar of the community. The decision to build the Melbourne Trades Hall, for example, was largely because the delegates objected to meeting in hotels. It's also worth quoting the main objectives of the Lamming Flat Miners Protection League. One was the promulgation of the word of God. The other was to use their utmost energies to preserve order and to protect property and the rights of every individual and to seize, secure and hand over to government authorities any thief, robber or ruffian who violates the law of the country. End of quote. Humphrey McQueen has added to this by showing that the racism of the time was shared in full by the working class and its unions and coloured labour was seen as a threat to living standards. This was not merely an economic consideration, but full-blown racism, a full-blown racism to non-Europeans, as a look at Henry Lawson will show, or as J.C. Watson said in 1901, he was the first Labour Prime Minister, quote, The question is whether we would desire that our sisters or our brothers would be married into any of these races to which we object. End of quote. Despite much of its character, the boom of the 1870s and the 1880s enabled the rapid extension of unionism and the securing of wage and condition concessions. When the boom bubble burst, the unions were determined to consolidate the gains won, and employers were less willing to make concessions and responded by forming various employer organisations. The strike, which lasted from 1891 to 1894, exhausted and defeated the unions. Bad economic conditions, the extensive use of so-called free, i.e. scab labour, and the extensive use of the state police, law courts and the state generally by the employers against the unions resulted in defeat for the union movement. This and the hostility of the capitalist press to the labour movement led to a rising of class consciousness, though by no means was there a revolutionary situation. In 1890, there were still more domestic servants than there were trade unionists. Thus, although a considerable class consciousness was needed to establish the ALP, 
The general objective was social reform, not socialism. The idea of separate political organisation did not originate in the defeat of the unions in the 1890s, but the trade unions began more earnestly to organise the new Labour parties. It was the committees of the Trades Hall that established the political leagues. These leagues from the first represented both the trade unions and the Labour leagues in their conferences. There were minorities within the ALP, like the Victorian Socialist Party, which sought to get the ALP to adopt a socialist objective. But until 1921, all that had been achieved was, quote, the collective ownership of monopolies, end of quote, in the federal platform of 1905. ALP policy in these early days included support for arbitration, not a strategy based on class struggle, white Australia, and a gradual acceptance of the support link with Imperial Britain. This last policy is interesting, interesting because loyalty to the British Crown increased after the Russian-Japanese War of 1904-5, when the Japanese won a surprising victory, and the fear of Asians saw Labour men swinging to the protection of the British Navy. During the 1890s, the radical journals like the Bulletin were aggressively Republican, but by 1914, Labour Prime Minister Fisher was pledging support to the Empire, quote, to the last man and the last shilling, end of quote. The ALP, as it emerged in the 1890s and after Federation in 1900, was Liberal Labour rather than a Socialist Labour Party. In policy, they differed from the Liberals largely in their enthusiasm with which they sought to complete the framework of capitalist democracy and secondly by their acceptance of state amelioration of conditions as a philosophy and not as the Liberals regarded it, merely as an expedient. The reasons for this are as follows. Australia's capitalist economy was still in its early development and was still in many ways particularly a colonial country. Secondly, although monopoly control developed in wool, cattle and mining, and it was these that had the mass unions and the first demands for nationalisation, generally, manufacturing industries, at least till 1914, were small-scale. In 1908, for example, the average factory employed only 19.8 employees. Even these factories were light industry. In fact, there was no steel industry in Australia until 1914. These factors influenced the structure and outlook of the Australian labour movement. The small factory unit made for limited class consciousness. That is, workers didn't really think of themselves first and foremost as workers. The generally high wages, particularly since 1851, were based on more of a sharing out amongst the workers, particularly the skilled workers, of parts of the profits from the sale of scarce raw materials overseas. Under these conditions, Unionism in the cities was essentially craft unionism, mainly skilled workers, and union leaders and labour MPs were drawn from the upper crust of the skilled workers, often called the labour aristocracy. This layer, now enshrined as a union bureaucracy, acts as a buffer between the bourgeoisie and the working class. They fitted into the state and commonwealth parliaments, they shared the same basic acceptance of society as did their non-Labour MPs. The third point is 
The direct responsibility of Australian governments for many economic activities, such as railways, posts, telegraphs and roads, produced an acceptance of state enterprises as a possible alternative to private capitalist enterprise in many fields. This attitude was strengthened by the development in the states of social services and pensions. Reforming zeal rather than fundamental changes was stimulated as concessions were wrung from the capitalist class in quick succession. These included abolition of voting anomalies, universal suffrage, not merely for men, health acts, mining acts and the eight-hour day legislation. From 1907 on, there was increasing criticism by the industrial wing of the Labour MPs and the gradual growth of disenchantment with the moderate line of the ALP leadership. This was due to an increasing drift towards monopolisation of industry, the increasing exploitation of labour and the fall in real wages. Thus, we see in its origins, the ALP was not born a socialist party. It never aspired to abolish private ownership of the factories, the land and the financial institutions. In fact, in words of striking relevance today, Nenon in 1920 wrote of the Labour Party, quote, Of course, the bulk of the members of the Labour Party are workers. However, whether a party is really a political party of the workers or not, depends not only whether it consists of workers, but also upon who leads it, upon the contents of its activities and of its political tactics. Only the latter determines whether we have before us a real party of the proletariat. From this point of view, the only correct one, the Labour Party is a thoroughly bourgeois party, because although it consists of workers, it is led by reactionaries, and the worst reactionaries at that, who act fully in the spirit of the bourgeoisie. It is an organisation of the bourgeoisie which exists to systematically dupe the workers with the aid of the British Noskis and Scheidemans, who were notorious trade union bureaucrats. This was Lenin's speech on affiliation to the Labour Party on the 6th of August 1920. And that was the first in a series of lectures recorded by broadcaster Chris Gaffney, and we'll be hearing more of those over coming months. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. The recent 7.5 magnitude earthquake and aftershocks in the southern highlands of Papua New Guinea has caused huge damage and as yet a still unknown casualty rate amongst the many isolated villages. The disaster has led many local people blaming the quake on ExxonMobil's $24 billion LNG operation in the Hela province, which withstood the earthquake extremely well because of the world-class design and construction of the facility and a quick response by its staff, 
although it is estimated to take two months to repair and restore production. For his assessment of the situation in the Southern Highlands and the impact on the people, I spoke with Dr Luke Fletcher, Director of Jubilee Australia, which monitors the impact of government and corporate behaviour in communities overseas. And I asked Luke to explain first the position of Jubilee Australia with the likelihood or not that this quake was not caused by the gas operations. Yes, it's a very good question. At the moment, according to the information that we currently have, we think it's very unlikely that it was caused by the gas operations. The the main reason that we say that is that the Australian Geological Survey has set the depth of the earthquake at 17 kilometres below the surface of the earth. So even though it's right, the, the location of the epicentre is right where the gas operations are, most geologists, professional geologists and seismologists would say that that is too low to be caused by any sort of gas drilling or sort of anything to do with in, yeah, water injection or anything like that. And therefore, it's much more likely to be caused by, and it is a, an area where earthquakes are unknown to happen and are, and are prone to happen. So we think it's very unlikely. We do think that there should be an inquiry and, and we understand there is an inquiry being organised, but on the the current information we have, we think it's unlikely. Well, I assume that there's plenty of reasons why the people in the area would focus their pain and frustration on the company and its project in Heller. Can you talk about the project? Yeah, that's exactly right. Assuming that it wasn't caused by the company, there's still a lot of feeling in, in the area that it may have been, and there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that there's, it's a huge gas project. It's the biggest extractive project, not just in PNG, but in the whole Pacific region. It's been going since 2014, uh, and the construction started in 2010. What does it look like? So in terms of the infrastructure, it's not, it's not like a big mine. So it's not like a big hole in the ground. There's a number of gas extraction points and wellheads so they're, they're using some existing wellheads that, that are already used to extract oil and then they've built some new ones. So they're re- sort of relatively discrete sites. And then there's a long pipeline that runs all the way from the Gila region down through, down towards Caution Bay, so sort of across the rainforest and down to Caution Bay and then, in, and then across Caution Bay to Port Moresby and there's an LNG plant. But in terms of the infrastructure in the Gila, it's basically these oil and gas wellheads this enchantment, if you like, has been mainly around two issues. One is the question of royalties. And in, in the Gila region, at least, there have been few to no royalties paid as yet, which is, which is highly unusual. Normally, the royalties should be paid or expected paid as soon as the gas starts to flow, so from 2014 and it's now 2018. And the other reason for discontent is that there was a lot of development promised in terms of infrastructure and services and that sort of thing and most of these development promises have not been met so there's just a general level of frustration in in the region as to what's happening and people are feeling like the promises that were made to them about the project were not have not been delivered or are not being delivered and that's why there's discontent and the other reason is that there is there is a sort of local prophecy about that the mountain where the project is, is happening has sort of, sort of some, 
some cultural stories associated with it about the fire in the mountain and, and not disrupting the fire in the mountain. And so it's some of the earthquake stuff is sort of fed into this sort of cultural beliefs amongst the people up there. Just looking at the first two you mentioned there, why no royalties and why no development? What's the company saying? These are good questions that we're actually working on a report um, to examine these questions right now, which we hope to publish soon. The issue of royalties is essentially a, a problem of landowner identification. So you can't distribute the royalties until you figure out who the, who the particular landowners are for each, each pass of land that the project takes place on. And it was always going to be a very complicated task because land ownership in that region is particularly sort of contested and, and it's not straightforward to identify, which is one of the things that we pointed out before the start of the project, that this was going to be very, extremely difficult. And the problem was, was that the companies and the government moved ahead with the project without that landowner mapping being done. And it's now still being contested by many different groups about who, who has right to what pastoral land. And there's all sorts of disputes going on and the mapping wasn't completed before, as it's supposed to under the PNG law, before the project started. So that was, that's why the royalties haven't been paid. That's the main reason why the royalties haven't been paid. There are some questions about whether all the royalties are in the accounts they're supposed to be in as well. So that, that could be another reason, although we're not, we're still waiting for more information about that. Uh, in terms of the development benefits, the reason why there hasn't been so much infrastructure, there's probably a complex number of reasons around that in terms of the ability of these local officials and local bureaucracies to manage the revenues and to deliver development projects. So there's sort of capacity issues and we also are trying to find out, again, whether the money has got into the account that's supposed to have been. Uh, one thing that we have found at the national level, because there's significant revenues going to the national government, is that the payments have been a lot less in recent years than, than were projected because of a whole lot of tax concessions and, um, and other reasons. So in both cases, I guess the short answer is that there's questions about whether the money is there and then there's questions that even if the money's there, whether there's capacity to deliver that money to, and, and to sort of see benefits. What sort of development was promised? So there's a range of different uh, projects and, and, uh, that were promised, ranging from sort of infrastructure, like electrification, water supply, roads, educational resources, for example, um, uh, educational campuses, hospitals, health, like health services and, and, and sort of medical centres. And yeah, as I mentioned, roads was a big one, so sort of essential infrastructure and uh, just general, there, there does seem to have been some promises made about sort of city development, sort of urban development in, in Tari as well. And according to the information we have, most of these projects have, have not been delivered. There are some, there have been some projects that have been built that have become white elephants. For example, there's a hospital or a medical centre that was built and it's just completely empty because there's no one to staff it. So there's a combination of sort of lack of production of the, the infrastructure, but then infrastructure that has been produced is not necessarily being used. Was there any employment for the local people at this plant? There are a small number of jobs, but there was a lot of employment during the construction phase um, and there was a real boom in the region. 
and that was part of the original deal, was that, that um, locals would be able to set up businesses and um, sort of access the contracts, and that that was very much um, what happened. So in sort of between 2010 to sort of 2014, there was a lot of work. These days, the number of locals who are being employed is, has, has reduced severely because it's sort of operations that you don't need a lot of staff, and you also will be using quite a lot of sort of technically skilled staff from, from overseas as well. Let's look at the reactions, responses to the disaster in terms of helping the people. What's happened? You mean from the government or from the companies? Anyone. There's obviously been a significant response. It's a huge problem for the government. The Oil Search and Exxon, the main two companies involved, have both given funds towards disaster relief. I think, I think off the top of my head that... Uh, Oil Search have pitched in about five million, and Exxon about one million dollars of disaster relief. Um, at, at the last I heard, and then the government has there's well, there's been an increase in security of the area because there's a lot of there's a there's sort of a perception or, or reality of, of in, increased discontent, and then there's been just a lot of sort of emergency, the sort of standard emergency relief that we would normally expect in terms of trying to get fresh water and supplies to the people who need it because. A lot of people have um, obviously lost their homes and been displaced and that sort of thing. What about the Australian government? They've been involved in this project right from the beginning? That's right. So the Australian government's involvement in the project has essentially been through a $500 million loan through an entity called EFIC, which is um, an, an export credit agency. So it's, a, it's an agency that the government can use from time to time to support its businesses that, that do exports overseas. So this particular, in this particular case, the majority of the loan was uh, through a process. Normally, EFIC would lend through its own money, but in this particular case, the majority of the money came from the taxpayer, taxpayers itself. So this requires a particular decision by the cabinet to essentially request or order EFIC to do this. And it was the largest loan that Australia ever made. So that decision was made at the end of 2009. And as I said, $500 million Australian. It was the largest loan that EFIC had ever made. So it was a hugely significant investment by the Australian government and commitment to this project. This is originally, yeah, this is okay. in 2009. Okay. Well, what, yeah. what's, the, what's the Australian government doing at the moment? Um, the, the Australian government has offered aid. And I, the other thing it has offered it has been to assist the PNG with investigating the, the cause of the earthquake. So they're sort of both sort of direct aid, but also sort of technical assistance. Is it known how many people have been affected by this disaster? Not only those Look, who have died and are injured, but just people whose whole lives have been disrupted and might never be able to return to their homes. It's been difficult to get information about that, to be honest with you. We're still waiting on, as you can imagine, it's a very remote region uh, and it's hard to get data because it's, it's you know, the, the PNG Highlands are notoriously inaccessible. So we have seen um, some figures, but we're sort of still waiting on sort of official figures. But, you know, many, many, many thousands of people have been affected in one way or another. That's, that's really all we, we know at this point. And how would those people have earned their livelihood? In PNG, as in most of Melanesia, most people's 
um, livelihood is is earned through their own subsistence activities. So basically, most people in the in the rural parts of PNG, at least, most people live in villages, and villages tend to have community or family-owned plots of land that they call gardens, and most of their food comes from from gardening. So growing food, and then obviously, you know, supplemented through hunting, but also buying foods at the local market that you can use and sort of selling selling your surplus produce and then using that to buy buy other things you need. So the issue so that's that's sort of the social security system in PNG if you like. They don't necessarily have the same sort of social security that we have here. So if people lose access to their land and to their gardens, then they become very vulnerable, right? Because that's where they're getting most of their their subsistence from. So it's both a question of housing but also subsistence food when you when you see environmental catastrophes like what we've seen. Are they flying in food? I believe they are, yeah. But this is what we obviously uh, <laughs> because of the vulnerabilities and in order to sort of help people tie them over until they can start producing their own food again, they need emergency supplies. Yeah, they can say it's very difficult to look after the people now, but I dare say that they didn't have too many difficulties when they were building the project. They got in there when they needed to. Is that being cynical? And I think that's I think I think that's the, that's why there's so much unhappiness, right? Is that this theoretically, at least, the reality turned out to be quite different. But at least in theory, the project was supposed to bring huge revenues to the people of PNG. We would argue that's not what has happened. In fact, it's really not necessarily been good for the PNG economy as a whole anyway but the argument was that almost that this is so important for PNG's development that or, or not so much the argument but this almost the implicit position was that this is so important for PNG's development that if there's a you know a few small number of communities disrupted then so be it because this is this is for the, the greater good of the country and I think what we've seen is sort of the locals from the Gila region really realising that they've got a raw deal and I think increasingly the people of PNG starting to question whether these sorts of projects and this is the biggest extractive project in, in the history of the country have also have a large benefit so there's there's criticism you can make at both ends. Is that what I was going to say next that what we're talking mm. about is just one of many extractive industries that have been operating in PNG for decades and decades and people of local people and even the government has seen very little benefit from it. Well, that's right. We've seen actually um, PNG's development indicators go backwards since independence and on, on, on a lot of issues, on a lot of um, indicators. Certainly, it's one of the poorest countries in, in the region and there are still a, a, a lot of... It, it's, it's, you know, in terms of the sustainable development goals and that sort of thing, it's not, it's not doing well compared to other countries in the region, despite its mineral wealth. And as you, as you point out, it, it, there, there's been a lot of mines, um, and there's been a lot of mines with a lot of human rights and environmental problems, like Oxetti and the Pogram mine. And, and there's, there's about around about a dozen, or perhaps a few less than a dozen mines going at the moment. This project is, however, was supposed to be different because the size of the revenues just was supposed to dwarf and um, all the other previous projects. It was predicted to double the GDP of the country. No, that's not what's happened. But this project, this gas project, was considered to be a game-changer for the PNG economy. So it is, it is, yes, it is sort of 
in the tradition of these resource projects, but it is also itself a particularly unique example. And where does transparency and accountability come into it? We're in Australia, right, and we're, we, we, our, our NGO, Jubilee Australia, focuses on the um, responsibility of Australian corporations and government decisions. And in this particular case, that's why I mentioned earlier, the question of ethic and decision to order ethic to make this loan. This was a, a completely untransparent decision. The documents or the advice upon which ethic was ordered to, or the decision was taken have never been made public and despite repeated requests for them and that's because of the the way that the legislation that controls ethic and and sort of protects both it and also in this particular case the government from decisions and, and disastrous decisions we would argue that are made so what we're arguing for is greater transparency and accountability for ethic and for the government's oversight of ethic, for example, instead of you know, th- these documents should be made public as a matter of course, before, and, and if a big decision like this is being made, the, the public should have an opportunity to review them, the parliament should debate them openly before cabinet makes a decision. There are other decisions that ethic makes without approval from the government, and these are also non-transparent, so ethics own internal processes need to be reformed. So there's, there's really important need for reform around these sorts of loans. And meanwhile, the people sit and wait. Yes. You know, the earthquake would have happened anyway. It's important to say that, it seems, at the moment, from what we know, the earthquake would have happened anyway. So we should be careful to distinguish the earthquake from the project. But, and you know, the delivery of aid and, and that sort of thing is a separate issue to the development or lack of development from extractive projects. But in this particular case, obviously... They've all come together in one particular conglomeration, which is a really heartbreaking one. And is this project ongoing now? It wasn't damaged much? There's been some damage, but um, they're expecting to be repaired. My understanding is some of the damage has already been fixed and they're expecting to repair it pretty, pretty soon, so there hasn't been too much permanent damage as far as I know. I've been speaking with Dr Luke Fletcher, who's the Director of Jubilee Australia, talking about the earthquake and it's after shocks in Hella province in PNG. It's coming up to 10 minutes to 5 o'clock. In a minute or so we'll be hearing from Dr Brian Singwaratna talking about the attacks on Muslims in Sri Lanka and then a longer interview with Australian permaculturist Rosemary Morrow. Dear listeners, the annual Good Friday Charity Radiothon of the Australian Medical Aid Foundation will kick off from 9 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. on Friday, the 30th March. 3CR is dedicating its media space to support this noble cause. Therefore, 3CR's regular program will not be on air during this time. The funds raised from this 10-hour Radiothon will be utilised to supply medical aid, equipment, training, patient-centred care programs and resources to those affected by 30 years of war in the north and east of Sri Lanka. You too can become a generous partner by calling us on 03-9419-8377 during the Radiothon on 30th Friday to donate towards this wonderful initiative. 
the Sri Lankan government declared a state of emergency on the 6th of March for 10 days in reaction to violent anti-Muslim attacks, which have claimed at least one life. On the line is Australian Sri Lankan human rights activist Dr Brian Sinwaratna. Brian, to your knowledge, is this violence against the Muslims something new or is it something that's been ongoing in the past? Actually, I have given many interviews over your radio station and I was going to ring you yesterday asking whether I can duck out of this one because normally I know what I'm talking about. This time I have no idea what I'm talking about. This is being a half-Buddhist myself. My father is a Christian and my mother is a devout Buddhist. So I do know what Lord Buddha uh, taught. And he didn't preach violence against Muslims or anybody else. Buddhism, for those who do not know, is divided into two big groups. The Theravada Buddhists, or what they call the Southern Buddhists, in Myanmar, that's Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, and Laos. And the Northern Buddhists, in places like China and uh, north of that. The problem seems to be with the Theravada Buddhists, or the Southern Buddhists. Why this should be a problem, I have no idea. The Muslim population in all of these countries, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and even in Sri Lanka, are, are tiny. Most of them are only about 2 to 3% Muslims. So Sri Lanka is a little higher, about 7%. In a huge Buddhist country, where 70 to 80% are Buddhists. And why the Buddhists should turn on the Muslims, I have absolutely no idea. This has actually assumed enormous violent proportions in uh, Myanmar. Uh, it has been going on for some time. Southwestern part of Myanmar, that is Burma, is called the Rakhinya, R-A-K-H-I-N-E area, where the majority, like in the rest of Myanmar, are Buddhists. And in this huge Buddhist area, there are about 2 or 3% of Muslims called the Rohingyas. You'll hear that word over and over again because it is these Rohingyas to flee persecution who are coming to Australia as asylum seekers. The Burmese have said, and for a long time, that the Rohingyas are recent, open quote recent, migrants from India. And they do not qualify to be called indigenous people of Myanmar, which is, of course, nonsense. They have been there for thousands of years. But the fact is that they are not even given status of being an indigenous group. Rahinya majority, who are, of course, as I said, Buddhists, resent the presence of the Rohingyas, who they view as a Muslim group from another country, the other country being India. Nonetheless, why they should persecute them, I have no idea. In fact, the WHO, uh, I think it was the WHO, no, the UN, United Nations, described the Rohingyas as the most persecuted minority in the world. It is not thousands, it's hundreds of thousands have fled the country and gone to 
India or wherever they go to, you see, even some of the countries, Muslim countries in that area are literally full up because of the numbers involved. Now, in Sri Lanka, this caught on only relatively recently. The Muslims have been quiet people, they are traders, and in the 25-year armed conflict between the Tamils and the Sri Lankan government, the Muslims have kept out of it. They have maintained a low profile and in fact have supported the government. Then this group called the Bodu Palasena or something, Buddhist Power Force, headed by what I as a half-Buddhist would call a yellow-robed hoodlum. He is, I mean, just like he's just a hooligan, that thought that these Muslims should be persecuted. And uh, he set, set out to destroy Muslim shrines called mosques, Muslim homes, Muslim businesses, and Muslims themselves. Uh, this has now got out of control. It was initially in the southern part of Sri Lanka, but now it has spread, particularly to the center, that is Kandy, where the Temple of the Tooth, the Buddhist, the big temple is, and that area. Uh, so much so that uh, the president has just declared this national crisis and uh, declared a state of emergency across the whole of Sri Lanka. It is not going to stop. I can assure you of that. This is actually going to get worse, and it has. Over the last, uh, I don't know, month or two that I have been monitoring the situation with alarm, I might add, uh, because if the conflict against the Tamils was bad enough, you don't want to now replace that with a, a murderous campaign against the Muslims. What they are trying to achieve, God only knows. In Myanmar, it is to drive the Muslims out of the country to India or wherever. In Sri Lanka, they can't be driven anywhere because they have no other place to drive them to, being an island. Um, the situation getting really, really bad. BBS, Bodu Balasena, the Buddhist Power Force, have attacked politicians. They have attacked Sinhalese politicians, I might add. Political groups, members of parliament, you name it, they have got, got into it. I think that some of the Sinhalese uh, politicians, certainly the Muslim politicians, have called them a racist group who don't really care what they are doing. They have abused and assaulted, as I said, members of parliament, shops owned by Muslims, and even owned by some of the Sinhalese who are sympathetic to the Muslims. Some of the senior Buddhist monks have realized that, you know, this is not the teaching of Buddhism, and they are alarmed, but they can't control uh, these extremist Buddhist monks of the BBS, they have been dead. But uh, the important point is that there is no possibility unless the leader of the BBS is arrested for hate speech and for stirring up problems, which President Sirisena, the president of the country, is simply too weak to do. He said, oh yes, the BBS leader venerable, whatever his name is, should be arrested. Well, why doesn't he go ahead and arrest him? Because he has created enough problems. He's just too afraid. And uh, I think that even the Sinhalese politicians are asking the question, what is the president doing? And the answer is nothing.
who's funding this group? I don't know who is funding the group, but I can tell you who is supporting the group, and that is the previous president, Mahindra Rajapaksa's brother, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the so-called defense secretary, who was in fact the de facto president of Sri Lanka until Mahindra Rajapaksa was thrown out uh, two years ago. He has sponsored this. I don't know whether it's by with money or not, but certainly there are a number of photographs that I've got of Gotabaya Rajapaksa with this bunch of radical Buddhist extremists saying that he thinks that they are doing a great job. Now, the worrying thing is that your listeners would not know that there was a provincial council election a couple of weeks ago, I think it was about a week ago, in which the current president fared very badly. And right on top, sweeping the board, was none other than the Rajapaksas. So it's Rajapaksas came first by a long way. Trailing behind them was the United National Party of Prime Minister Vikramasinghe. And right at the bottom was the President's Party, the SLFP. Now, I can assure you that if there is an election held tomorrow, thank God it's not going to be held tomorrow, the Rajapaksa will be back big time. The elections are till, not till 2020, but there is no way that the current president will be elected. I, I can almost take a bet that the next president of Sri Lanka will be Gotabe Rajapaksa, a war criminal. Prime Minister will be either the previous president, Mahindra Rajapaksa, who cannot contest as a president because he has done his two terms, or someone of that party. But Gotabe Rajapaksa, who has actually committed all sorts of crimes, including crimes against humanity, will be the next president. And if that happens, then this anti-Muslim violence will just go through the roof. Are we looking, as you've been talking about for a while, as the Buddhization of Sri Lanka? They've beaten the Tamils. Now yeah. they're focusing on the Muslims. That's right. Where are the Christians going to fit into this? The Christians are also getting attacked. By, in fact, they're attacked a lot. But uh, it hasn't got the sort of uh, recognition that Christian churches by the hundreds and Hindu uh, temples, Kovils, have been attacked and not rebuilt. Christian schools, particularly in the north, are being occupied by uh, the armed forces. Uh, the Christians have suffered, no question about that. Incidentally, the BBS have asked the Pope of all people to apologize to uh, Sri Lanka for not condemning the government of Sri Lanka. They are, they are crazy. I keep on saying that they are crazy, but it doesn't answer your question. Why? They are, they are quite mad. The worrying thing is that they are going from strength to strength. What you've just been talking about, Brian, the violence, at the moment there's a, a meeting in Geneva of the 37th session yeah. of the Human Rights Council there. Have these issues been brought up at that meeting? No, that's for sure. Why they haven't been brought up, God only knows, but it hasn't been, not to my knowledge. Uh, it was unfortunate I was due to go for this meeting, at least to raise the uh, issue of the uh, Tamils. Who, the Tamil North and the East is not under the Sri Lankan government. It is under the Sri Lankan armed forces and police 
who can do what they want to the Tamils uh, with no accountability. And I was going to raise that issue, whether the international community should not act at the fact that uh, it is illegal and unconstitutional for a military stroke police state uh, to be functioning in the north and the east of Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, because of problems uh, I had to have had here, I couldn't go. But I sent this, uh, I know, 10-page document to be circulated to all the participants, participating countries, and of course to the High Commissioner, Zaid uh, Al-Hassar, who is unfortunately stepping down uh, in the media and not seeking uh, re-election, because he said, and quite rightly, that this is a job that is the High Commissioner for Human Rights, it is a job that you cannot do. It is impossible. Who are the people who would be reading your paper? Who are the participants in this council? The person who is distributing the uh, paper is a very dedicated Tamil. He's not from Sri Lanka. He is actually, he has never been to Sri Lanka. He's from uh, Malaysia. He has taken the sole responsibility of seeing every UN human rights person from all the countries and handing this letter to them or article to them saying, this is not written by a Tamil tiger terrorist. It is written by a Sinhalese who is the cousin of the previous president. Whether they will take any notice, I don't know. But as I said in that paper, the only people who can settle the problems in Sri Lanka and for that matter, even in Myanmar, uh, regarding the Rohingyas, are the international community. They would have to put the screws on. My greatest disappointment is that the leader, de facto leader of uh, Myanmar, is none other than Aung San Suu Kyi, a Nobel Prize winner. And this is a woman I have regarded as, and not, not, not only myself, many, many people, including Archbishop Desmond Tutu, as an icon of uh, human rights. And Aung San Suu Kyi denies that the Rohingyas are having any problem at all. I, I mean, I was shocked that she should take the same line as the Burmese army that I maintained for years, that the Rohingya crisis is a man-made, uh, is a made-up thing. There has been a call for Aung San Suu Kyi to have her Nobel Prize withdrawn, but the Nobel uh, Committee, unfortunately, said that once the Nobel Prize is awarded, it's awarded. You can't uh, withdraw it. But there are a number of other groups, particularly in the United States, that have withdrawn a recognition of Aung San Suu Kyi. She really has uh, all the years that she struggled as the champion of human rights, she has destroyed by her attitude uh, to the Rohingya people. Whether she had done this to save her own backside, because you cannot, in uh, Myanmar, do anything that the armed forces do not approve of. In other words, you have to support the armed forces. And I think Aung San Suu Kyi, if she was to be the de facto any other, or any other type of leader in Myanmar, has to support the armed forces. And if the armed forces say the Rohingyas have got no problem, Aung San Suu Kyi feels that she should say the same thing. Yes, but she went into this job with eyes open, didn't she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's reacting to it with her eyes open, that's for sure. 
but I was most impressed by Bishop Desmond Tutu, who is dying of prostate cancer. I thought actually that he died uh, about a month ago. He survived. He has opted out of any form of involvement with anything other than to prepare to leave the, this earth. He wrote a personal letter. My dear sister Aung San Suu Kyi, I expect you to rise above what you are doing and behave as you have behaved for years. As you well know, I have got a photograph of you on my table and I've had this for years. You see, Desmond Tutu has a group of people called the elders. Aung San Suu Kyi is one of the elders. But uh, Desmond Tutu's letter, really, I mean, it's a heart-rending letter. I would have rather preferred to see Desmond Tutu dead than for him to be alive and see what Aung San Suu Kyi had done. Well, looking at both those countries, what can be done? What should be done and what will be done? can be done is that international aid should be cut. And the U.S. is in a position to put the screws on because Myanmar particularly gets a lot of aid from the U.S. But uh, while Obama might have done it, uh, Donald Trump won't. And he has, he has not even recognized that there is a crisis in Myanmar. As for Sri Lanka, I think only God can help Sri Lanka. The Tamils that live outside of Sri Lanka, what can they do? What about the Tamils in India? There are millions of those. There are millions. There are 75 million Tamils in Tamil Nadu itself. <laughs> the problem is that India is in two pieces. There are Tamil Nadu under the Tamils, but India is not by, run by Tamil Nadu. India is run by the Brahmins in Delhi, and uh, Tamil Nadu hasn't got that amount of influence on India. So to expect India to act, India should act, for goodness sake, yeah, because uh, Sri Lanka is at the, the, the sort of uh, back door of India. But for the Brahmins in Delhi to act is uh, unlikely to occur. But the only other only country in the world with the power to act in Sri Lanka on behalf of the Tamils or human rights or whatever is actually India. The role of China? China, as I said in my paper, Sri Lanka is up for sale. And the buyers are India and China. The Chinese bank is owed 8 billion US dollars from Sri Lanka. Neither the bank, mind you. Debt owed to China is much more than that. If the Rajapaksas get in, you can bet your bottom dollar that the Chinese will be back big time. They already are there big time. That will be the, the big problem uh, where the Rajapaksas are returning, if the Rajapaksas return. Even if they don't return, China has got its foot into Sri Lanka in many places. Even the road signs, I gather, I have been to Sri Lanka since 1984, I gather that some of the road signs are in Sinhalese, and not Tamil, but Sinhalese and Chinese. I mean, there are some 20,000 Chinese in the Jaffna Peninsula alone. They are bought huge areas of uh, land in Sri Lanka. The most uh, uh, alarming uh, and amusing part 
property that a huge, I think it's about 200 acres of land, they bought for growing tapioca. Now, the tapioca is planted and grown by Chinese brought from China into Sri Lanka, exported from Colombo at discount prices to China. China makes chips, tapioca chips, and re-imports it into Sri Lanka for the tourists and others at a, at a cost of about three or four hundred percent profit. So the Chinese are doing very well. The airport in Rajapaksa's hometown, the Matala Airport, built on Chinese money, it has got, I gather, one plane a week, one aircraft a week, is running at a huge loss. Next to that is the harbor where only the Chinese ships can get in. It's a military harbor. China has got its foot into Sri Lanka in a big way. But that footprint will be bigger if the Rajapaksa is getting. When do the elections schedule? 2020. Right. The presidential election is 2020, January. General election is, I think, September 2020. And in the meantime? In the meantime, there will be chaos. Raja Sirisena is, the, as I said in my paper, the weakest president that Sri Lanka has ever had, ever, that I can remember. And I've been around uh, observing the uh, events in Sri Lanka for the past, uh, I don't know, 80-odd years. I have never known of a president as weak as Sirisena. At the moment, the president and the prime minister are not on talking terms. They have had a fight. In fact, President Sirisena asked the Prime Minister, Rani Vikramasinghe, to step down as Prime Minister. Vikramasinghe, of course, told him to go to hell, uh, that he's not going to do anything of the sort. But they're not on talking terms. I, I really think that Sri Lanka is going to be a failed state, no question about that. The debt service payment, Sri Lanka's debt service payment is greater than the total income of the country. So then where is the money to run the country? And this is the country where our great Minister for Immigration, Dutton, sending Tamil families back to? Yes, absolutely. To be murdered. And you see, someone asked me, what have you got to do with the uh, problems in Sri Lanka? You're not there. You're not coming back. You have been there since 83. What business is it of yours? I said it is very much my business because I'm an Australian and these people taking asylum, whether they be Muslims or Tamils or whatever, end up here. And I think that that is uh, the current government may deny that there are asylum seeker uh, votes coming, but we know uh, that there are asylum seeker votes coming and they are being turned around and sent back to Sri Lanka. And as you rightly said, uh, even more alarming are that people who have sought asylum are being sent back in breach of the Asylum Seeker Convention, signed and ratified by this country, Australia. In fact, I think Australia has a case, case to answer in terms of uh, the breach of the Asylum Seeker Convention. Thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure, as they say. That's Dr. Brian Simiratna. 
human rights activist from Sri Lanka who's been an activist since he was, I think he said, 16 years old and he's now in his mid-80s. A long time to work for peace and justice for people around the world, particularly as his focus has been the Tamil people of Sri Lanka. And now it's the Muslims being attacked and, as he said, also the Christians. It's 15 minutes past five. Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. Dear listeners, the annual Good Friday charity radiothon of the Australian Medical Aid Foundation will kick off from 9 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. on Friday, the 30th March. 3CR is dedicating its media space to support this noble cause. Therefore, 3CR's regular program will not be on air during this time. The funds raised from this 10-hour radiothon will be utilized to supply medical aid, equipment, training, patient-centered care programs and resources to those affected by 30 years of war in the north and east of Sri Lanka. You too can become a generous partner by calling us on 03-9419-8377 during the radiothon on 30th Friday to donate towards this wonderful initiative. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Internationally renowned Australian permaculturalist Rosemary Morrow has worked in many countries which have suffered disasters such as war, AIDS, civil breakdown to teach citizens to restore food, identity and confidence using permaculture as a medium. Her most recent visit was to Afghanistan, teaching 35 young students a month-long course in low-resource farming. I spoke with Rosemary yesterday, now back home in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, and asked her first when, where and why permaculture became her life. Well, it was in 1985, 86, and Robin Francis was probably teaching her third course, having learned it from Bill. And we were in Sydney, in Newtown, in the inner city, were uh, a fairly interested group, and Robin, a new teacher, and I had come from environmental science, agricultural science, and horticulture. So a lot of it made sense to me in terms of my previous experience, what I was wanting to do. And what actually was it about permaculture that 
attracted you? Oh, of course, I didn't. The word wasn't popular then, but it was really a systems approach. It was so integrated and seamless that I had done reductionist science all my life, and I'd also been working in development for many years. I'd come from Africa, where agricultural science wasn't useful to village people who were hungry. So I had that on my mind that I was useless. Also. Realised in permaculture, it wasn't new about soils or forests or plants. It was new in terms of integrating all these things almost simultaneously. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, I, I, but I must tell you a little story. I had a student once, an engineer, and uh, I said to him, how are you going, Alan? And he said, terrible. And I said, why? And he said, well, we have to think of everything at once. We can't just think of keeping everything steady. So in permaculture, as in agriculture, there are huge numbers of variables. Everything changes, the rainfall, the temperature, the air pressure, the soil, the soil density, the nutrition all the time. Now, on the whole, scientists behave as if that doesn't happen. We have this rainfall and we have this soil and it's all fixed. Permaculture admits to the variability and you have to consider them. So, you know, when you plant a plant, it's not that you're just looking at the soil moisture, you're also looking at the temperature. Or you mightn't plant it till the soil moisture comes up to a certain extent, whereas someone else will be planting on a calendar. If it's not in by the 15th of November, it's too late. Well, in permaculture, we'd say let's wait for the first rains. And it's a grassroots system. It's, it's open to grassroots, but it is science. Applied science, but you're applying many sciences simultaneously. Are there any limitations in terms of climate, etc., soil? Is there anywhere where permaculture principles doesn't work? No. I mean, you know, in the Rocky Mountains where they get four metres of snow, what they've done is they've changed the environment. They're using glasshouses and passive heating to a degree where they can grow bananas and then there's permaculture in Sweden and Norway and Finland. The area isn't the problem, it's the way you understand where you are and it's really quite scientific. You do have to understand about heat and light and soil warmth and transference of warmth and winds and wind strengths to understand what's happening in your environment. So it requires considerable both talking to others and knowing, but also your own observations as well as those you might get from the Met Bureau, for example. So a permaculture course cues into all of these things? Yes. We take them one by one, and then when we start to design, we look at water and try to make hydrated landscapes where you use less water and save water and protect water and then you add to that your soils and then how can your soils hold the water and how can your soils grow because soils grow and then where and how would you put a crop into that so you're constantly creating the conditions under which things can thrive you're not constantly saying there's not enough rain or I've got terrible soil you're saying what is it I need to do to get this to the situation where everything will thrive. So one thing might be just putting in a windbreak and then you get an enormous survival of species in some area. You know, but that sounds as if you're doing it alone, but the person who doesn't put in the windbreak then says the wind's too strong. 
it takes away the grievance mentality as well because you're looking to understand the factors and the limiting factors that are working at any time. You mentioned that in a previous life you'd been working with people in developing countries. When was your, and why and who, was your first visit overseas as a permaculture teacher? Oh, look, before I did permaculture, I'd worked in Nepal, India, and I'd done three years, three and a half years in Africa in Lesotho next to South Africa in the time of apartheid, so that I'd been aware then that agricultural science didn't work. I did my course with Robin, and within a short time, I was asked by two different NGOs to go to Vietnam. Now, Vietnam then had 57 cars and no telephones that weren't locked up in boxes, and Hanoi had 10 million bicycles, and if you had a message, send someone, you'd call someone sitting outside and they'd ride very, very fast with a bicycle across Hanoi to deliver the message. And that was in the late 80s. And what were the things you were able to do there? Well, I've got a way of operating. I always want the biggest impact for the energy input. And that energy is largely mine to teach people. So what I've been interested in is teaching people where permaculture becomes in-service training. So in Vietnam, everything had collapsed over 35 years of war, going way back to the French occupation and all those years of war. So things like agriculture departments and education departments had pretty much fallen apart. So new information was really sought by them because Vietnam wanted to join the world. So I was able to join departments or big associations such as the Peasants Association or the Farmers Association and train their trainers in the provinces and mainly at district level. So they did permaculture and they did a teaching method. So fairly quickly it had become indigenised or local information that was then taught through the country. I taught half the provinces and the FAO took over the other half and taught there. And it went really well until China sent their people in with fertiliser and pesticides. And at that point, agricultural advisors employed by the government selling pesticides and fertilisers and everything being bright green, there was a real collapse into industrial agriculture. Then you had that thing where people got sick and they bled from the nose and they didn't have a market and now they've gone back to a cleaner form of agriculture. But you can imagine it was enormously dispiriting when that happened because you really had a whole country that had placed itself well in the home and export market to be able to have clean water and clean stuff. And the other thing, that had fish cages in the rivers which were very, very successful because they've got hugely good aquaculture there. And um, suddenly all the fish died in the fish cages because of the chemicals going into the water from this farm. So, you know, you can set up wonderful systems and think, well, isn't that marvellous? And then something comes along like that and takes it apart. But I guess, you know, you just do it anyway. Thank so you. Vietnam was the first country. Cambodia was the next during Pol Pot. The war was on then. And that was pretty horrific, you know. There were landmines and roadblocks and Pol Pot. 
ambushes and stuff. But luckily the NGO I worked for then didn't really understand it or know it, so I just kept working there. Otherwise, I think they would have pulled me out. I was thinking about that with Cambodia and Vietnam and the landmines, the cluster bombs. How did they do agriculture with so many millions of those landmines all over their lands? Well, of course, in Cambodia they had at least, I think, five or six organisations that were landmine removal. So they would go through and they had their techniques. First of all, they knew roughly where they were planted, so they put up the landmine sign, which was the skull and crossbones, and then the clearance groups would go through and clear the landmines. Someone at one stage said they should just send sheep. The people are so hungry, send the sheep through and then they'll all get... I mean, that was sort of a joke, but I knew what they meant. The people are starving, they've got landmines, and... um, they need better answers than one-by-one removal. You know, Cambodia today is fairly free of landmines. Laos has still got some, but I've just come back from Afghanistan where there are massive landmines. And years ago, at least 10 years ago, there was an international agreement to shut down the production of landmines. And at that time, Italy was the biggest producer, and they stopped... And, of course, if Australia goes for arms and armament industry, it will start producing landmines, which is surely the coward's weapon of them all. Anyway, that's getting off track. So now countries I'm going to, places like, I think, Russia and perhaps other countries are now doing landmines again. So, you know, to look at a civilian, main civilian population must be the coward's way of working in, you know, the absolute cringe method of thinking that you can win anything. But the biggest landmines in the world are 21 miles or kilometres between North and South Korea, where I believe there's a landmine every 30 or 40 centimetres. But we're off track a bit, aren't we? (laughs) But, I mean, landmines are disgusting and handguns are disgusting and they've been part of my life. What about Africa? What sort of places did you go to Africa? Uh, East Coast. I've never been to West Coast Africa. I spent three, three and a half, four years in the Sutu before I did permaculture and that was pretty useless. And when I went back, I went to Uganda, Ethiopia and taught a course in Malawi. So East Coast Africa. And that was pretty lovely and easy because people generally speak English. And to them, my my accent is strong, but for me, their accent's strong. They had enough English that you could work with them and put up keywords and there was understanding. And it, in tropical countries, restitution of societies is quicker and easier than the places I've been working in the last couple of years, which are really horrific. Because it's warm, you don't have the frightfulness of the cold, cold winds and snow because it's wetter, you've got quickly, you can get pawpaw and bananas and, you know, sweet potato going very, very fast in a short time to restore food supplies. But I think I hadn't taken on, well, I'd never thought about how terrible it was to be in high, dry, cold, cold climates and be homeless or suffering and trying to get gardens going with long hunger gaps. I mean, the tropics have a hunger gap where it's too hot to plant or too dry to plant, but they can certainly pickle stuff and put it away. But these places like Iraq and Afghanistan and 
even Kashmir to some extent, with the long cold winters and winds, they are much, much worse for the people and harder to establish permaculture quite fast. Just thinking of some of those places where you've been, Africa, Asia, have you been able to go back years later and see the fruits of your train-the-trainer or training people? Oh, look, it's been... What happened recently, this year, Uganda had its first national permaculture convergence and it was run by African... I think of them as young ones, 20, but now they're about 23, 24, that I have taught. And suddenly, one of them went to the COP talks in Bonn, was it, this year? They've been invited to speak. They're being picked up by foreign NGOs. They're running... Yeah, absolutely fantastic things. But most overseas work at least goes through some sort of dive where you think this isn't working, it's all hopeless, I don't know what I do this for, it's mad. And they go through lulls. You could not write outcomes really into a project proposal, which they all want. You know, at the end of some, these people in this refugee camp will all be growing lettuces or tomatoes or something because... Their lives are too precarious and difficult and unanticipated to be able to say that. What we can say is that from the refugee camps in Iraq last year, some of those refugees are going to be able to come across to the refugees from Mosul, which was completely bombed out because of ISIS last October, and talk to the others about what it will be to do permaculture and the usefulness of it to take home. So, you know, but at this stage, we didn't even know that there'd be that many Mosul refugees, let alone some would be sent home to rubble. So you can't really write your outcomes very well. How long were you in Iraq? I was in Iraq this time last year for five to six weeks, I think. It was a specific job. World Vision wanted to see if permaculture would work in refugee camps for Syrian Kurds. Syrian Kurds. So this time it'll be Kurdish people from Mosul and they're classified as internally displaced, IDPs, internally displaced people. But they're all Kurds even if they live in different countries and are coming from different conditions. So some have been bombed out of Syria, but others have been bombed out of a city in Kurdistan in Iraq. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Rosemary Morrow, internationally renowned Australian permaculturist. So is what you're saying is that you're teaching people so that when they finally go home, they can introduce permaculture? No, I wasn't. I was really saying that some people who are in camps and going to be there for a long time can switch over from the dreadful rations and voucher systems that apply to being able to make those camps productive and clean water and get shade. And some who are going back will also have skills. But most people spend about 12 years. Some are refugees and some are IDPs. So refugees are often a long time before they go home. IDPs, governments try to get them back where they came, where they left in a fairly short time. When I think of refugee camps and when I see refugee camps, it's usually in a very barren bit of land that no one else wants. That's not the case? 
Yes, that is the case, but there are things that can be done with that land just the same. Because they get water, and because the water's pumped out of the groundwater, and because there are harsh winds, and because there's grey water, because people wash and wash clothes, there are resources there that they can use to soften the whole camp. Where do the seeds come from? The seeds sometimes come from local markets, sometimes they come as a gift. Um, there aren't any seeds normally to start with. Sometimes when people run, they take seeds, but it depends if they have to take children and carry other things. I mean, it depends on the different refugees. Some take seeds and cooking pots, some can't because they, other stuff has greater priority. Who was behind your recent visit to Afghanistan with the young students? Oh, look at see. Afghan Peace Volunteers, who is an extraordinary group of young people, I think it puts all our young people to shame, who decided that even though they've never known peace, they want peace above all else. And they want the bombing to stop and they want the Americans and Australians to go home and they want to negotiate on the ground. And so they have decided that as peace volunteers, they will help the most needy in their country so they're teaching literacy numeracy and non-violence to street children and women they're getting a whole set up for duvets i think they make something like three to six thousand duvets because there are 1.8 million idps in kabul because the taliban have got 70 percent of the country and people have run to Kabul to kabul so you've got these huge numbers of internally displaced people in enormous need living the most dreadful lives. So the peace volunteers want permaculture to be able to grow food because it's all coming from Pakistan and Iran and they also want to be able to teach others. And where does this schooling take place? In a street in Kabul where you walk in an old iron rusty gate and you go into a place and there's a schoolroom. Uh, there's a building that's used for various classes and things. And the duvets? We don't give you the address. For good reason? Yes, because things are being bombed around Kabul and they also move quite often. What about the duvets? Who makes those and who gets them? Uh, these are women, these are widows at absolutely maybe living under canvas under, with three metres of snow, having several children nearly freezing and people make them and then they make selections of the absolute poorest. So poor women who might have some protection make the duvets for women who are poorer and it's all coordinated by the peace volunteers. It's quite a big business. How far outside Kabul were you able to travel or weren't you able to travel at all? I would have been able to travel to Bamiyan and the Panchia Valley, but I didn't have time this time. But things are much, much worse. People are more hopeless in a way, and I was in a full burqa all the time, and I loathed it. I hated it. This was just so I wouldn't get kidnapped or I wouldn't draw attention to the people who accompanied me everywhere. Can you explain or do you know why the situation is a lot worse now? Well, because America increased the bombing this year and then the Taliban and ISIS have replied in kind and in the middle of the Afghan people. Trump increased the bombing from January massively. 
I, I suspect they're even experimenting with weapons on the people. Huge bombing. It doesn't do anything because it's just injustice and then they've got the drones and they're bombing. And it just this big new bombing thing doesn't feel like saving. It feels like just making their lives worse because, as I said, the reprisals come from the Taliban and the ISIS on the people. Did the people talk to you about the impact of the drones on their lives? Yes, they loathe them, absolutely loathe them, and they talk about how many more people are dying since the drones have come. They call themselves the drone capital of the world, and they also have a $2 million blimp floating in the sky that gets its things wrong and it tries to identify. You know, it's a bit like Vietnam. No one really knows so far as the um, foreign soldiers and things, you can never know who is against you and who's for you. So they're constantly nervous and a wreck and bombing things by mistake and making errors. I mean, one village while I was there, someone said to me they bombed it so severely that you can't dig holes to bury the bodies. The whole village was just carpet bomb massively just been this year talk about some of the young people that you work with their stories oh well they're 14 to 28 some of them are at high school and some of them are at university but of course in doing the course with me their level of education is very very low because Afghanistan hasn't got a lot of cross influences with other countries to know about their standards so a lovely young woman doing plant pathology said in three years she'd been into a laboratory to look at it twice now you can't do plant pathology without being in a laboratory five days a week and growing cultures and measuring things and looking at impacts and of course there's almost no greenery uh, very few trees, very little greenery, we, and very few species to work on. There are willows, poplars, pines, but compared with Australia, the number of species is minimal. And most people haven't seen a forest. And I visited a professor of forestry at the Agricultural University, and I said, where's the nearest forest where I can take the students? And he said, oh, that's hard. 80 kilometres away, there's a bit of a, a U forest, Y-E-W. So I didn't have anything to work with. I didn't have ground. I had very little seed. I didn't have trees. I didn't have models. didn't have water systems. We couldn't take students to private gardens because they were considered gatherings like that might be terrorism. The government has sold off most of the public land, so you can't work on public land, you can't get into schools at every point. All this is a result of war. It's not just corruption and bad government. It's what war does to countries, unrelenting war. So that's very, very difficult to apply permaculture. Very hard indeed. What could you do? Well, we ended up making a permaculture club, so I had... Uh, last summer, Sarah had 46 students. This year, we weeded a few out and cut it down to 31, which is very difficult when it all has to be translated sometimes into two different languages, maybe Dari and Pashtu or something. 
and not a good classroom and nothing to look at. So what we did, we made a permaculture club and 10 or 12 of them are going to form groups and they will be able to visit each other's places and help. We're going to get them to do translations for the... I'm working with a program called Permaculture for Refugees, which is through Iraq and Greece and Italy and people in Spain. They're going to do translations in Dari, the language of Afghan, one of the languages of Afghanistan, for Afghani refugees in camps in Greece. So a number of small things we are trying but it's enormously difficult but young people there they want to go to university and they want to get married and they would love to have a normal life i.e angst about girls and boys and do their studies and worry about their assignments and get a job unemployment's 50 percent of young people so there's a great deal of having to sit at home all day with mum and dad because they can't leave home. It, it's pretty, pretty dreadful life for people, really, and there's, I can't see any way out at the moment, except that the American government will have to talk to the Taliban and they might as well stop bombing them now and start getting some discussions and seeing if they can get them to open up. Because the Taliban isn't one organisation. It's many from quite, quite, quite radical to very, very conservative. There isn't one Taliban, as people might think. So, you know, what we've got is we're pushing on with it because the Afghan peace volunteers believe in green, equal and non-violent and they are superb practitioners of non-violence. And I think taking on to help the poorest and green the world is the most remarkable thing they could do. I can't imagine many young Australians, not many, suddenly taking on and saying we're going to help the poorest people and work with the poorest people with an equality in our communities. So it's, you know, how could they, how dare they dream of peace when the bombers and the Chinook helicopters go over every day to bomb their country for smithereens and they've never known anything different. And you're talking about young women as well as young men. Yes, yeah, probably a third, nearly a third to a half of young women. The fact that they've got a centre to come to to meet other young women and sit and talk, talk about their hopes and their problems is really, really important. And in some ways at the bottom line of teaching is that for three to four weeks people could come and think and learn something really, really different and amazing that they could do and be involved with each other and learn with each other over that time and get a different breath of air. It's also important people go there and say you're not all terrorists, you're just ordinary people suffering under this huge world onslaught on your country because Russia and Pakistan are involved as well in different ways. You know, someone turns up and says you're ordinary, nice, good young people. They'd all like to leave, and I think they're right. I think that way they could save their lives. But, of course, everyone just sees them as a threat, not a solution and an answer, because they're enormously hard workers and would adore to be somewhere where there's peace, where they could just get on with being good citizens. Did you get an understanding of what the Department of Agriculture is able to do in the situation that you've talked about? Oh, look... 
I went to the University of Agriculture and I had a couple of university lecturers in the class and they were very intrigued. And I'd say things to try and draw out their knowledge. You know, now you know this. And they'd just look at me and shake their heads and say, no, I don't. So I know the standard was very, very poor. Now, at the university, I met the dean who simply said... I did my study in Japan and I've come back and the world climate change will be solved by technology. Now, I don't believe that. I think we have to have green answers. It's not going to be IT that solves the world's problems and climate change. But when I was in Kashmir, which is again a dreadful situation, absolutely shocking, the dean of the agricultural faculty there said... We must look to green solutions and we want to know everything we can about permaculture. Here's a room. We're sending some of our staff. We're sending our PhD students. We're sending everyone we can to learn this. I had an enormous class and it was difficult, but they had an opposite point of view from the Afghan professor. Now, when I said, why don't I go up and see the agriculture department, they said, well, they'll see you, but they wouldn't see us. So you can't just walk into the agriculture department and say, can I have a talk to extension officer or someone who's doing experimental work? Or it, First of all, there are big fences and then there are guns and then there are, are people and then you have to have a letter and you have to ring in advance with the letter and then you get admitted. And I really didn't have the time to go through all that. I suppose if I went back, I might. But it was a really difficult situation. As is every department is the same. It's not agriculture. It's everywhere. Once you're home, do you have the facility of Skype to contact students in Afghanistan and also in other countries that you've been working with? Yeah, I hear from students. Last year I was teaching in northwest India. I've been along the Himalaya Ridge for the last couple of years. And they were from Bhutan, Ladakh, Sikkim. You know, the high country, if their concerns are melting snows, as is the main concern of Afghanistan when it comes to climate. Because once the snows melt, they're dry. And first of all, the melting snows make floods, terrible floods, as they did in Iraq. And Iraq's the same. So all these countries, I have contact with students from Bhutan, from Tibet. Oh, no, Tibetan colonies in India, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. But I can only keep up with a certain amount. I do all this on my own. I don't have anyone to sort of, I can't say, you know, we do answer all these this morning, please. Mm. So I really run a fairly tight schedule. Just finally, Rosemary, you've had so many people learning from you, but I'd imagine all those people that you've visited over many years and the cultures that you've learnt a great deal yourself. Oh, there's not the slightest doubt, but it's put me on the outside of Australian society insofar as people say things like the whole world something and instead of having a discussion, I say, well, I'm thinking, no, not the whole world at all. This is just Europe and America and Australia. It is not so many billion people in the world. This is rubbish. You know, I don't take on every topic all the time, but I bring very much a global view about integrity and truth to what I'm thinking about and what I'm discussing, and I have been changed by it.
considerably, I'd say. I'm sure you have. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you, Jan. That was renowned Australian permaculturist Rasmi Morrow, who lives in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. It sounds a thing she doesn't spend a heck of a lot of time there at the moment or over the last few years. Just those countries that she spoke about there are just just some of the countries that she's worked with over nearly 30, 40 years and the great work that she's done and she still does here in Australia teaching permaculture. And as an aside, I'll have a permaculturalist on the program next week, a T. Marie's permaculturist who um, will be talking about what's happening in Timor-Leste and talk, also talking about the the history of agriculture in Timor-Leste right back before the colonisation, what it was like, what he's been told, passed down through the, the generations and whatever, and then what the impact of occupation by Indonesia was and then since independence, the way the people are working to re-establish their sustainable agriculture and lives completely. So that's on the program next week. Timor, List and Permaculture. The time now is 5.52, coming up to the end of the program. We'll have some more community announcements and then it will be time for Done by Law. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. 
Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Well, that is all for me for today, but I will be back next Tuesday. Some people are having a five-day holiday. I think it's five days, yeah, but here at 3CR. Tuesday home time, we have four, so it'll be Tuesday home time. As usual, next Tuesday between 4 and 6 p.m. Done by law coming up right now, but let's hear a little from Archie Roach. Bye for now.